0: All right. Thank you, Hannah. And of course, uh, to Kissy and uh, and Chris. And of course, great to see the Gonzalez family. We appreciate uh, your greeting. Um, hey, can I just encourage you that God is still working in the midst of this crazy time that we're in. He is continuing to do uh, just some great things. And you know, rather than uh, than be focused on all the things we're not able to do right now, um, if we just look around at the things that God is continuing to do and the ways that he's working, I think that you'll be uh, just super encouraged um, by that. Um, just to reiterate a little bit of what Hannah said, um, if you're able to make it with us on those Monday night Um, prayer meetings they've been just a sweet time of uh, of prayer and as well just a fellowship it's great to see faces there on the uh, on the zoom call Um, but as well even if you're not able to join us we would love to pray for you so we've had a number of folks you know send in prayer requests to us Um, you can just send them right to info at ccmv.org and then we take those requests and we lift them up before the Lord during our time together on Monday nights and then uh, as pastors uh, throughout the week. So um, also on Wednesday night uh, this week, a special treat, Brother Jericho is going to be sharing with us uh, from the word this week on Wednesday night. So if you've yet to tune in on a Wednesday night, uh, just a great opportunity to do that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, just to take uh, a few minutes with us and just be ministered to and uh, uh, just encouraged. Um, In the Lord. So, anyway, with all of that said, uh, grab your Bibles if you would, or turn them on, or do whatever it is that you need to do so that you have the word there in front of you. And uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 18. You know, we're following uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, on what we call his second missionary journey and we remember we were first at Philippi and then off to Thessalonica uh, later to Berea and then last week we arrived at Athens and we remember with all that awe-inspiring architecture and art and culture but as well there was that really spirit-stirring idolatry Um, This morning, of course, Paul is going to press on. We're going to travel together with him to his next stop in the city of Corinth. We're going to see that Corinth was another major, another very strategic Grecian city. And not unlike Athens, uh, Corinth was famous, or at least maybe we could say it was infamous uh, in its own right. And it's here in this city of Corinth Um, that will not only watch as Paul continues to minister in this city, um, but especially this morning, we're really going to get a glimpse inside the heart of this great uh, servant of the Lord. Uh, He's going to receive, we're going to see some very much needed encouragement here from the Lord at Corinth. And one of the things that I especially like about Acts chapter 18 is that it provides us with a very personal look at the Apostle Paul and so much of You know, this great book of Acts, we're watching, you know, one event after another and the planting of one church fellowship after another or this crisis that arises and and how the the Lord deals with those things as they unfold. And yet one of the things that is so instructive as we read God's word is when we get these kinds of little mini sort of biographical sketches, right, of these different men and the women that God uses so much. Mightily to accomplish his work in the world. And I think these sketches are so important to us because they really help us, I think, in our own witness. They help us in our own service, and they help us more specifically just in our own walk with the Lord. Uh, they're such an encouragement to us because we get to watch the way that the Lord really worked in the hearts of these people, and the way that he worked through their lives to touch the lives of so many others. So I hope that you're encouraged this morning. I've been encouraged this week. Uh, we're going to see the Apostle Paul is encouraged. But let's just pray and just ask the Lord really to bless us uh, as we look at his word today. So, Father, we thank you uh, as we do every week, Lord, just for the uh, just the privilege, Lord, the solemn privilege that it is that we can come together. Lord, that we can come together freely and study your word, Father. These uh, just these timeless truths, Lord, uh, since the before the foundations of the world, Lord, these things that you use, these words to communicate uh, your heart to our hearts. And so we pray this morning, Lord, uh, as we pray every time, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher, that you would open our hearts, Lord, to those things that you have For us, Lord. Give us ears to hear what you would say to your church today, we pray, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember when we left off last week, we remember that Paul had just finished kind of this little stint of some solo ministry there in the city of Athens. He left Silas and he left young Timothy back in Berea. And we remember we said that Paul was really provoked in his spirit by all of the idolatry that he he saw and the the meaning that he knew was behind all of those things and it he, because of that he plunged right into ministry there without even waiting for the rest of his team to arrive and we watched him reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue at the very same time he took his message right out into the marketplace and there he encountered remember we said some opposing philosophies by some different philosophers and they invited him up to the top of Mars Hill so that they could hear a little bit more about this new thing that Paul had brought to town and we watched we watched the apostle Paul really kind of adjust his approach in order to minister more effectively there at Athens speaking to this in this purely pagan culture to these people who had no framework they had no context at all for that one true creator god of Israel unfortunately we saw that as a result of the the shallow thorny soil and all those weeds that grew in it because of the intellectual pride that puffed up these people we saw that the Athenians overall response to the gospel was a little bit apathetic and though it said that there were some that did believe and we pick up now right from that point in verse 1 of uh, chapter 18 where we read that after these things so after the things at Athens it says after these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth now Corinth as we said was a major city in the Roman Empire. It was a, right at an important crossroads of trade and of travel. It was right along the route which carried most of the traffic east and west between Rome all the way out into Asia. And it was a city actually that had two different seaports. In a lot of ways, it was kind of a rival to its northern neighbor. Athens. In addition to being famous as a commercial center, Corinth was also a political center. It was the, the government capital of that particular state of the Roman Empire. So it had all of the power and the prestige and all of the money that comes with being one of those capital cities. It was also famous with its fascination for sports as well as architecture. You may have heard the the term uh, a Corinthian column, and of course that comes right here from the city of Corinth. But in addition to being famous for all those things, most of all, it was famous throughout the entirety of all of the Roman Empire. It had this remarkable reputation for loose living, for drunkenness, for unchecked hedonism, and especially for sexual immorality. Now, the Roman Empire was no innocent empire, and yet Corinth had earned its spot and really stood out as its most wicked city by far. There was actually a common saying back in that day that if someone was acting like a Corinthian, that it meant that they were living licentiously or they were acting in a drunk way. It was to be said that if you were in the company of a Corinthian companion, that meant that you were with a prostitute. And in fact, Corinth was a center for the worship of Aphrodite or Venus, right? The goddess of love. And they had a major temple there where she was worshipped. And in fact, the temple priests of Venus there had more than 10 thousand male and female prostitutes who were rented out day by day to the thousands and thousands of sailors and merchants and travelers that would have come into Corinth on those ships from all around the ancient world. Uh, Some might compare Corinth to Las Vegas The only problem with that comparison is that Las Vegas wouldn't even begin to give us a glimpse of what the ancients said was the degradation there in Corinth. Las Vegas would probably look a little bit more like a church barbecue, right? Compared to what was being allowed and what was prospering there in that city in Corinth in the Roman Empire. So it's into all of this that we imagine rabbi paul arriving right all alone after his experience there at athens and though we know that paul must have known kind of what he was going to expect there all of a sudden he would have that the reality he would have just been confronted with this wickedness and i would have to think that nothing could have really prepared him for what he witnessed. The, the level of depravity must have been so disheartening for this man who was such a spirit-filled man of God. And it's interesting to consider that Paul's letter that he wrote to the Romans, he wrote during his stay here at Corinth. And so it's not surprising, you know, when we read what is is Paul's most blistering expose of the outworking of unchecked sin that we read there right in Romans chapter one, we can just imagine that Paul didn't have to sit around in Corinth wondering, you know, racking his brain, using his imagination, thinking, you know, what could I write to really let people know how wicked sin actually is? Well, all Paul needed to do, was open the front door, right? All Paul needed to do was draw back the blinds or open up the look out the window, and all of it was being lived out right there before his eyes. And the point to all of this is that it it is in this city that the Holy Spirit would use Paul to establish what would become one of the most famous, and we suspect one of the largest churches. In all of the first century. It's also where we're going to see next that Paul would forge some lifelong and some deep-rooted Christian friendships. Because it was here in Corinth, we read in verse 2, that Paul is really going to be enriched now by some fellow believers. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says that Paul found a certain Jew named Achilla, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. And so, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers." So here we see the start of what would be one of the most important relationships, really in all of the, the New Testament, between the apostle Paul and this man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Paul would later say that they were his fellow workers who had risked their own necks for him. Right? We're going to see eventually they'll start to travel with Paul and they'll minister with him. They're going to become an important part of his Team, and he was very thankful to the Lord for them. And it seems that this godly couple had fled to Corinth from Rome, driven out by an edict that we know historically occurred in about AD 49 or AD 50. It came from Claudius Caesar, right, expelling all of the Jews from Rome because of what one Roman historian described as these constant riots which were occurring within the Jewish population there. And so what it seemed is that these riots were the result, one author explains, of dissension and disorder within the Jewish community of Rome, resulting from the introduction of Christianity into one or more of the synagogues of the city. And so here we have Achilla and Priscilla, likely already converted Christians in Rome, fleeing the city now, living and working here in Corinth in their trade as tent makers. Or more literally, that means leather workers. And it's a skill which we see Paul shared with them. And so he started to labor alongside of them in order to support his missionary lifestyle now today we'll often use that term "tent making" to refer to any work that a missionary or maybe a a church planting pastor will do to support themselves on the mission field and Paul's tent making was an important part of his ministry, although he he recognized and he wrote and he taught about the rights he had as a minister to be supported by those that he was ministering to. right? The scriptural pattern, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, is that the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And yet what we see is that Paul very often voluntarily supported himself in his missionary and preaching work with this tent making so that no one could ever accuse him of seeking converts simply for the sake of his own personal profit. Now, we can only imagine, right, this tent making, how enriching it was for Paul to find this Christian fellowship with these people in the midst of all of this wickedness of Corinth. You imagine them sitting there for hours daily, right, working with the leather, Talking together about the grace of God, sharing the things of God and, and their common faith that they had in the Lord Jesus. They would do this every day. And then each week we read in verse four, it says that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So here we see Paul doing what Paul always seems to be doing right spending the sabbath days in the synagogue reasoning from the scriptures with the jews and those god-fearing gentiles who would have been there again laying out for them all of those old testament prophecies that pointed to jesus of nazareth and paul's ministry approach here we see again it's as systematic as paul is steadfast and again we can't Help, But be amazed at Paul's faithfulness, even in the face of all of this past opposition that he had faced at the hands of his Jewish brethren, not to mention the riots, not to mention the beatings. And yet in city after city, he continued to be obedient to this calling of taking the gospel message to the Jew first. And we read in verse 5 that it's as he was engaging already in this ministry. It says in verse 5 that when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now we remember that Paul had left Silas and Timothy back in Berea. He'd gone on to Athens. At Athens he sent word To them for them to join him and so it was here that they finally caught up with Paul here at Corinth and if you if you put together the pieces from other parts of the New Testament what we know is that when Silas and Timothy came to Paul here at Corinth they brought him some very good news first of all there was this report that the Corinthians back in Thessalonica in addition to Berea that they were all growing in the faith and that the, the new church there was doing well despite all of the persecution that they were facing. We also know in addition to this good news that they brought Paul a financial gift from the church at Philippi. Again, another church where Paul had spent a very limited amount of time and yet something deep and something permanent had been established between him and them, and they became great supporters of his ongoing work. And this financial gift that they gave allowed Paul to put aside and abandon kind of his tent-making work as a means of trying to support himself and give himself fully to testifying about Jesus in Corinth full-time without any kind of distraction. If you're using the NIV translation, you'll notice there in verse 5, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. The NIV translates it as Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. And honestly, I think that the sense of the verse is that it's both of these things. So no doubt the provision from the Philippians had encouraged Paul practically so that he could set himself full time to preaching the gospel. But it was the good news of that re and that rekindled fellowship, I think, that Silas and Timothy that they brought, that must have encouraged Paul spiritually. Some have even pointed out that although we find in verse four, it says that Paul is reasoning there in the synagogue before Silas and Timothy arrive. Notice here it was after their arrival after the encouragement that came with them, there it says now that Paul is testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And I I think the sense here is that Paul was emboldened and that he was encouraged by the Holy Spirit and he throws himself more fully, if you will, into the work here at Corinth in, in even greater sense of zeal than he had before because I think he was emboldened through his fellow workers as as Silas and as Timothy arrived Paul was refreshed and revitalized and of course this is the power of encouragement within our Christian service And we can all imagine when we think about whatever the ministry is that God has called us to, that there's always some degree of discouragement in it. There's always some degree of opposition that comes along with it. But you imagine here, Paul, Paul has been driven from city after city after city, right he's devoted his life to this calling that God has placed upon him, and then to receive this sense of good news about the Thessalonians and the Bereans, and also you know from the Philippians. what an encouragement that would have been to him! Not only is the church surviving but the church really is thriving right and it's prospering there in every one of those places it's like it's taken root and god is continuing this work and i just think it was such an incredible encouragement that that would have been for paul and so now to have silas and timothy right his two main co-laborers to have them come once again alongside him there i think even for the great apostle paul this meant so much to him just as it does to each one of us when we're encouraged in our ministries and i think for paul it had this beautiful and this strong effect upon his soul. And it's so very important, I think, for us to be able to look and to see how instantly there was this emotional and kind of this spiritual re-excitement, right? This was the undergirding of all that it had here within Paul's life. And so I think he's refreshed and he's refilled. And it's like he turns up the volume, if you will, in his witness for jesus and look what it says in verse six it says but when they opposed him and blasphemed it says he shook his garments and said to them your blood be upon your own heads i am clean from now on i will go to the gentiles so once again it seems like We've seen this movie before because whenever the Lord starts to bless a ministry, or in this case, whenever he blesses a minister, we can expect that the opposition is only going to increase. And just as soon as the Jews heard Paul say that Jesus is the Christ, they were blasphemously angry. And it's when their opposition against Paul turned into blasphemy of jesus that's when paul knew that this was no longer a fruitful field that he could labor in he knew his ministry was over with them because they had hardened their hearts to his message and so we see he makes this dramatic display basically it's his way of expressing his rejection over their rejection and he uses these two very powerful what would have been recognizable images to them from the old testament just to really communicate to them how serious their sin was right shaking the dust off of his garments like shaking the dust off your sandals it's like saying look i don't want to have any part of your wrong decisions i don't want to carry anything of yours with me in this, And then in a reference to the prophet Ezekiel, Paul says that he is innocent, right? I'm innocent. I don't have any responsibility for the judgment that you ultimately are bringing upon yourselves. He said, I'm taking this life-saving message that I have, and I'm taking it now to the Gentiles. Once again, I think this is instructive for us because when we're involved in a witnessing experience right as we're sharing the gospel with another person at the point that it turns into an argument or that it becomes a conflict or certainly at the point where they they, there's blasphemy of some kind that witnessing experience is over right it's time to wrap that one up it's time to walk away and it's time to go find someone else who's willing to listen to us. Because really, when you, when you break it all down, when we share the gospel with somebody, all we are doing is presenting to them this offer of salvation with God. Right? We're offering them a gift from God. We're offering them the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And we're offering them a personal relationship with God. And if a person doesn't want that, then that's fine. We need to leave them to the Holy Spirit, pray for them, and move on to the next person. Here Paul later would write this to Timothy he say that a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And that's precisely what we see Paul do here, right? As he promised, he went to the Gentiles. And then look at verse uh, 7. He didn't have to go very far, did he? Because it says that he departed from there and he entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So, where did Paul go? He left the synagogue and went right next door, where he found this man named Titus Justus, right? A God fearing Gentile who had converted to Christianity and now whose home Paul would use as the new kind of base of his preaching operations there in Corinth, right next door to the synagogue. So, talk about provoking the Jews to jealousy. We've got Paul right next door. They couldn't help from the synagogue but see the miracles happening and see the joy that was abounding. They couldn't help but see the way that the church was growing. And then to make matters even worse, look what it says in verse 8. It says that then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing believed and were baptized this is an outstanding verse right because we see that what was happening right there next door to the synagogue it was so irresistible and it was so undeniable That even Crispus, right, the overseer, the kind of the head deacon, if you will, of the synagogue, this man who would have been especially well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, he comes to faith in Jesus, along with the rest of his family, likely all of his household servants followed his lead. And then I love the way I think that God used this kind of high profile conversion to just open up the floodgates. So Luke tells us that many of the Corinthians then opened their hearts to the gospel message and were also converted. It was like there was miracle after miracle. And when we read Paul's first letter written back to the church at Corinth, you sense the joy that filled Paul's heart as he kind of recounted the way that they responded these, these once wicked Corinthians, the way that they responded to the grace of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Right there in the midst of the, that cesspool of wickedness and immorality, right? The gospel just simply exploded there in that spiritually and morally dark environment. And so at this point, we could say that things certainly seem to be looking up for Paul, right, and his his team. And yet, in verse 9, we read something that sort of seems to come. Out of nowhere. Look at verses 9 and 10. All of this is happening. And then it says. And now the Lord spoke to Paul. In the night by a vision. Do not be afraid. But speak. And do not keep silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you. To hurt you. For I have many people. In this city. Now. If the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision at night saying, don't be afraid, then of course we can only assume that Paul must have indeed, what? He must have been afraid. But why? Well, I think it makes perfect sense because Paul too had seen this movie before. And it was precisely now as he saw this great spiritual awakening beginning to happen that Paul knew exactly what was coming next because he was starting to realize that whenever he saw all of this external gain that what followed was always some personal pain right all of these things these exciting things that were happening externally but the apostle Paul internally was in the middle of a very great and a very personal crisis, and he needed to be encouraged by Jesus. You know, I think when we look at Paul's life here in the scriptures, we naturally tend to look at it like spectators, right? We watch him going from here to there and then going off to this other place and then doing this and doing this other thing and and so on. But if we can just pause for a moment And again, try to put ourselves into Paul's shoes as all of this is unfolding there in the city of Corinth. That this is simply a repeat of a very familiar pattern for Paul, right? Okay, I go to a new city, I go into the synagogue. I reason from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the promised Messiah and I preach the gospel to them and I call on them to put their faith in Jesus for salvation and a bunch of people get saved and then this provokes jealousy from the unbelieving religious Jews and then it's just about at this point when my beating usually occurs or when some kind of a riot is going to erupt in this city with this mob that has a single desire to tear me limb from limb. And we know that this happened in Paul's ministry over and over and over again. In Antioch of Pisidia, and then in Derbe, and then in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and in Berea. And when we come to chapter 18 here in verse 9, this is exactly where Paul was in this very same progression, but now here in the city of Corinth. And and Paul had not only seen this movie over and over and over again, but he had also seen how it ended over and over and over again. And Paul was afraid. Now, we don't often think about Paul in terms of being afraid, but he was afraid. And he very candidly admits it when he writes to the Corinthians again in that first letter. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says that I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Again, why would Jesus tell him not to fear unless he was afraid? And why would Jesus tell him specifically that no one will attack you to hurtly to hurt you unless Paul was afraid specifically that he was about to be attacked and that he was about to be hurt once again? And I I think it's important again that we pause and we just take some time to think about the cumulative effect of having been kicked out of Antioch and Thessalonica and Berea. We think about the beating and the imprisonment there that happened in Philippi. We think about being stoned and left for dead right there at the city limits of Lystra. And the fact is that as he's in this place in the city of Corinth, Think about it. The wounds that he'd received from that beating in Philippi are probably just recently healed. And however strong a person might be in the face of this kind of thing the first time or maybe even the second time. And yet when it happens again and again and you think about having to live under this constant threat Of violence, and to look at any crowd from then on and to know that this kind of thing could happen again so easily and it could happen again so quickly. And what we need to know is that Paul didn't endure all of these things that he endured on these missionary journeys. He didn't do that as some sort of a cyborg, right? He wasn't some sort of a machine. Paul did all of these things as a human being, right? Every bit the same kind of human being that each and every one of us is. And all of this, it affected Paul in the very same way that it would have affected any of us. And so we're getting a glimpse here in these things. We're getting a real glimpse of Paul's humanity and he is afraid. And, and if I might say it, Paul has hit a wall. So much so that it's tempting him to stop speaking, right? to go silent, to stop doing exactly what it is that he's been called to do. And so Paul is in need of some desperate need, I think, of some encouragement. And not just any kind of encouragement, But Paul is desperately in need of the kind of encouragement that can come only directly from the Lord. And I think probably each one of us as Christians have been in a place in our own lives where we are in desperate need of some encouragement and the trial is so deep, right? The the trial is so difficult that we find ourselves in that as wonderful as the encouragement might be from a friend or from a family member, or even from a fellow Christian, or from ten of those people put together, we know that as wonderful and as powerful as that might be in some trials, that that just won't even make a dent in this particular trial. When we've reached that point where we say, you know, I have to hear something directly from the throne of God, in this circumstance in order for me to be able to regain some sort of perspective in this situation and to be able to just move forward in God's call upon my life and if I don't hear that I will not survive I won't survive in my calling I won't survive in anything in my life and I think that that's precisely the place that Paul finds himself and so what we see is that Jesus comes to him personally with this encouragement that he needed to not fear fear is such a powerful emotion isn't it and I think every single one of us is familiar with the kind of power that fear has perhaps especially this kind of fear that Paul was experiencing right the fear of people Right or, or really the fear of man, as the Bible calls it, that deep sense of danger and insecurity of some kind of threat, maybe a physical or even just an emotional circumstance. And this is a truly awful emotion to experience in its own right. And yet I believe that for the child of God, this kind of fear is not just an awful emotion to experience, but it is truly dangerous for us. And it's dangerous because it can so overtake our lives in a moment that we really run the risk. We are right there tempted to take control of the direction of our lives, to take back control of our decision making and then to begin to make all kinds of decisions in our life whether it concerns things that are big or concerns things that are small but we're tempted to take back that control and start making those decisions completely independent of the lord And we start to make these kinds of decisions with just one thought in mind. And that is, what will bring me the quickest relief from this paralyzing fear? What is it that will get me out of this circumstance that is the source of these fears? What's going to get me out of this thing the fastest? And that's the power of fear in our lives. And it always all almost always ends up right. under this kind of a motivation, it always ends up that we make very bad decisions. When we're motivated by fear, we make bad decisions that end up creating new circumstances that are actually even more filled with fear than the circumstance was before and that's precisely why Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs Proverbs 29:25 which we just read this past week he says that the fear of man brings a snare right it's a trap he says That's the fear that Paul was experiencing at this time in his ministry. It's this fear that threatened to lead him into exactly the wrong decision concerning his life and exactly the wrong direction related to his ministry. And that was to just shut things down there in Corinth long before God ever intended it to be shut down. God knew Right, That there were a multitude of people yet to be saved. He knew that he had many people still in that city that needed to be reached. Many who would still be saved and become a part of his family if Paul would just stay and continue to speak. Right, There were great things just around the corner for the Apostle Paul. And I think it's important for us to remember that God never, ever Uses fear in the form of the fear of man, in the form of the fear of circumstances, he will never ever use that kind of fear to direct us. He simply doesn't do it. Paul would write to Timothy about this very thing. He says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of what? But of power and of love and of a sound mind. That fear doesn't come from the Lord. It comes from the enemy. Instead, what the Lord will do is he'll use his word, right? He'll use some other form of divine revelation, maybe even like this vision here that Paul's experiencing. He'll use that coupled with his Holy Spirit in conjunction with our faith. And that's why the second part of Proverbs 29 goes like this. It said that the fear of man brings a snare But, what? Read it with me. Whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And I know it's such a hard thing to do, but it is so very important to resist the temptation to allow fear to be what drives our decision-making. But at those moments, to be able to just pull back Pull back from all of that and then to receive the very same thing that Jesus brought to Paul here. And that was a reminder of his presence in Paul's life, a reminder of his protection over Paul's path and this promise of Paul's future success. These are the same things that the Lord Jesus gives to us. And these are the things that will calm down our fears and then bring that heavenly perspective back into our lives. Remember, and then we'll move on, I promise. But remember, it was at this point in Paul's life, after this crisis of fear in his ministry, this is when we know that he would write this to the Romans. In Romans 8... Starting in verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or fill in the blank with your own trial this morning. He said, yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. It's like Paul is just ransacking the universe to try to find something that might separate us from the presence and the love of God. And he says, there's nothing. He says, none shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Paul knew that the solution to his fear was simply to obey the command of Jesus to not be afraid. And to stay and continue there in Corinth, speaking and not keeping silent. Keep getting the word of God out. And so look what it says in verse 11. He's continuing in his calling. It says there that he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul continues knowing God was with him, knowing that people were going to be saved. And during those 18 months of witness, Paul saw scores of victories in spite of all of Satan's opposition. The lives of countless sinners were transformed through the word of God, according to the grace of God. And Paul, because he stuck it out, Paul got to see proof of all of these promises of Jesus. And quickly, we see that in the remainder of our text today because it was as Paul was ministering there sometime during this next year and a half. Look what it says in verse 11, that when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia... The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So, just as Paul anticipated, here the unbelieving Jews tried to silence him by bringing him before this man named Gallio, right? This newly appointed proconsul of that region. The Jews are accusing Paul of preaching this new religion that wasn't permitted according to Roman law. Verse 14, it says that when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names of, and your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. Verse 16 said that he drove them from the judgment seat. Also in Proverbs 21 Solomon wrote that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And so we hear that Galio, therefore, he saw the Jews' envy... Just for what it was, right? This was nothing to do with some kind of concern for Rome or Roman law or Roman culture. This was a personal and a religious dispute between Paul and these religious leaders. And so Gallio strongly rebukes these men that had dragged Paul before him. He forcefully had to have them removed from his presence. I love the way that without even a word, from Paul Jesus jumps in right and he uses even this ungodly governor to fulfill his promises of protection related to Paul's life imagine Jesus using an ungodly governor it says in verse 17 then all the Greeks took Sosthenes the ruler of the synagogue and beat him before the judgment seat but Gallio took no notice of these things. So, so angry were the Greeks for the disruption that was brought by the Jews, probably because they'd brought this kind of an empty charge in front of this Roman governor, that they take out their frustrations, they give the beating that the Jews had wanted to be given to Paul, and they lay it on this poor guy, Sosthenes, instead who we find out was now the new ruler of the synagogue, because remember, of course, the previous ruler, Crispus, had probably lost his gig in the synagogue when he trusted in Jesus and became a Christian. Now, this may not seem to be very fair to us, but what's interesting to notice is that this Sosthenes, who took the beating instead of Paul, that he too later evidently becomes a Christian and ultimately becomes a co-laborer with Paul, because Paul actually writes with him when he writes this letter back to the church at Corinth. So we have to consider maybe this is sort of a new method of Christian evangelism, right? You kind of beat it into them. We might even say that Sosthenes, maybe he had some sense beat into him at this point. Or maybe we'd even go so far on a Sunday morning as to say that he had the heck beat out of him by the Greeks. Okay, maybe we wouldn't say that. Finishing up just the first part of verse 18. Look what it says there. It says, so Paul still remained a good while. Right. All in all, I think that Paul's ministry here in the city of Corinth, which he nearly quit before it even got started, it very likely exceeded even the best of his expectations, because for a full year and a half... He was able to remain there and to minister. And likely, again, this is when he wrote the letters to the Romans, also to the Thessalonians at the same time. He was able to recover physically, not just from his travels, but from all of his physical tribulations. And we know he was able to be refreshed and to be encouraged in his spirit. And not only not only by the promises from Jesus, but by being able to watch those promises fulfilled before his very eyes, all because he was obedient to Jesus. He didn't let fear lead him out of all of those things that the Lord had in store for him. So as we close this morning, looking at Paul's visit here in Corinth, we wanna close with this very same kind of encouragement When these very same kinds of circumstances come up in our own lives. And that is simply don't take control of your life out of the hands of God, right? And into your own hands because you're in a season of fear. And if you're listening this morning and if you are in the middle of doing that today, stop doing that today. Right? Do not make one more decision that is based out of fear. Back away, right? pull back, seek a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Look for some promise in God's word that's applicable to your situation. And then allow that to guide your decision making by faith. And remember, when we think about these promises that Jesus makes, Jesus can make these kinds of promises, and Jesus can keep these kinds of promises for one very simple reason. And that reason is that Jesus alone, unlike all of our friends, and unlike our family members, unlike our fellow believers who love us so much, but Jesus alone is able to make these kinds of powerful promises and to keep them, for the simple reason that Jesus is greater than every circumstance in our lives that is producing that kind of fear. Whatever your situation is, whatever the details of it are, Jesus is greater than all of those things. And because we know that, we know that he will act in our situation, in such a way that each and every one of those promises is proven true in our lives just in the very same way that we see them proven here to be true in the life of Paul. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the tremendous encouragement that it brings to each one of us, Lord, whatever it is that we're facing this morning, Lord. We pray that that fear wouldn't grip us, Lord, and wouldn't lead us out of your will, Lord, but that we would stop, Lord, and that we would just rest in the precious promises of your Son, Jesus, Lord, and that we would entrust that situation, Lord. We would entrust that fear to him Lord, allowing him to work lord allowing you to show yourself strong on our behands, on our behalf lord allowing you to to uphold us with your righteous right hand and so we thank you lord and we praise you lord expectantly for what it is that we know is his name amen I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. O oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. God bless you guys this week, and I just pray that the Lord would pour out his grace upon you and that that grace would just wash away whatever fears uh, are in your way today Amen? amen god bless you guys